Hey everyone, I wanted to jump on here before I get into the next episode and talk with you a little bit about what you can expect over the next couple of weeks. I want to focus several episodes, possibly three if I can get it all arranged, uh, the next two or three episodes on the issue of overdose deaths and in particular fentanyl. And I talk to people in Topeka and I bring people in uh, from up here during the session to to talk with me and, and to be on the podcast. It's not often that I talk specifically about an issue that I'm, I've been working on, but for this one, I'm going to, uh, for the last better part of the last two years, uh, I, along with several other members in the house, have been really advocating for the decriminalization of fentanyl testing strips. Basically, the way the Kansas statute on paraphernalia reads right now, anything that's used to analyze a drug is considered criminal paraphernalia. And that statute was written well before fentanyl was even a thought. And it was definitely written before there was an ability to test for fentanyl. And over the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear from two different people who I hope will shed some light on what we're seeing in the state as it relates to fentanyl. The first episode you'll hear from a former U.S. attorney, Stephen McAllister. He was appointed in 2018 by President Trump to serve as the U.S. attorney for Kansas. And as you'll hear him explain, he, he describes fentanyl as a game changer. He said, we've never seen a drug like this. We've never seen anything like this before. And he hopes that we never see anything like this again, but that it has completely changed the landscape of uh, what we're seeing in, in, in the drug world. And part of uh, what he'll talk about is kind of what he saw as a prosecutor and what brought him to a place where he felt very strongly that we needed to try to give people as many tools as possible to save their lives because in effect, people are being poisoned by a drug uh, and we can have conversations about addiction. We can have conversations about drug use and, and all of those. But um, the bottom line is, is that people are, if, if they're using drugs, they think they're using one drug and they're being poisoned by another drug. And um, we also know that people who can stay alive through their addiction, don't stay addicted forever, and they do recover, and they get better, and they become very a very meaningful part of our society and our community. And part of what, what we hope to accomplish by the decriminalization of fentanyl testing strips is to give people the tools to gather the information they need to know if their drugs are tainted and to see if there's something that they can do to adjust their behavior and adjust their usage so that they can stay alive. And uh, and I think that's a really, I was really thankful that Stephen came on and visited with me. And I think you'll find this conversation very compelling. In the second part of this, and what I'll do next week, is uh, I'll sit down and talk with Sharon Mandel, who is a, a associate coroner in Shawnee County. But she works for a science center, a forensic center, that has the contract for uh, somewhere between 50 and 70 counties. As she describes, it kind of depends on the caseload. But she ran some numbers on what they're seeing uh, in the in her field, which is the death scene investigation and autopsy field uh, from fentanyl. And the, the numbers are quite staggering. And remember when you hear that, that those aren't statewide, those are just limited to, to an area. But overall, what we're, we're finding here is that um, fentanyl is being brought into our country in large quantities. It's being integrated into other drugs that people uh, use. It's being produced in artificial or counterfeit pill form. And so people think that they're taking a Percocet or they think they're taking an Oxycontin. It looks like it's come from a pharmacy, but it hasn't. And, uh, and, and people are dying and in, of particular concern is that children are dying. And uh, if you haven't read some of the reporting that's come out of the Kansas City Star on this issue, you should do yourself a favor and read this because what we're finding is that kids, uh, students, teenagers in particular, are this is getting in their hands. And they're looking at this and they're seeing pills that look like somebody got it from their grandma's medicine cabinet when in fact it's something that's laced with fentanyl. 
And uh, and I think as you listen to these episodes and you listen to Sharon and you listen to Stephen, you'll find that it's incredibly easy for these counterfeit, counterfeit pills to be made and incredibly easy for them to find their way into the hands of teenagers and into basically anyone. Um, both Sharon and, and Stephen talk a little bit about how what we're seeing with fentanyl isn't just limited to kind of the antiquated idea of what a drug user is. Um, this is hitting every segment of Kansas society. It's hitting every uh, socioeconomic group. And I think that it's really important that we take a serious look at this, an honest look at this, and try to figure out what it is we want to do to save lives. Because at the end of the day, these the people that we're talking about, the people that are dying, are our friends and neighbors, they're our relatives, and they're they're suffering. And we should, if we hold to our values, uh, we should want to keep them alive. We should want to use whatever tools we can to protect them, keep them alive until they get to a place that they can get better. And uh, I, I hope you'll enjoy these next couple of conversations that I'm working on a third one because I'd really like to spend some time focusing on this issue. Um, if I've done quite a bit of writing and there's been quite a bit of news coverage on fentanyl test strips and what I think that could mean for the state and how I think that's an important tool to get in the hands of people. And uh, I hope you'll check that out. But over the next couple of weeks, we're going to focus on this issue. I hope you'll enjoy it. I hope you listen to it with an open mind. And I hope at the end of that, you see things somewhat like I do, which is that we have an obligation to help people stay alive and get them to a place that they, they, where they can recover. And that possibility is there, but it never exists. And the, the hope that rest in that person is taken away if they, if they die and in effect, they're dying because they're being poisoned because they're being given a drug that they don't know they're taking. And I think it's really an important topic that we need to look at. And I hope you'll uh, come along with me uh, to learn a little more about this epidemic that is affecting our state and our country. Thank you. Hey everyone, this is that guy in Hutch, Jason Probst, and you're listening to that podcast in Hutch. Today I, I have somebody I'm really excited to, to visit with, and I'll explain here in a minute how we got connected, but his name is Stephen McAllister, and I looked at his resume earlier today, and uh, we've been talking for a while, but I, and I knew a little bit about what he did, but I didn't quite know how extensive it was. He's, you've been a KU School of Law professor since 1993. You clerked for Justices Byron White and Clarence Thomas in the Supreme Court. You were the Solicitor General for Kansas from 1999 to 2003. You've argued a number of cases before the Supreme Court on behalf of Kansas. And in 2018, President Trump appointed you as a U.S. Attorney and you served in that role until 2001. So I'm very excited to have Stephen McAllister on. Stephen, thanks for being here today. My pleasure. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, how we became connected and, and I'll share a little bit of the story and then kind of let you go. Um, there was some reporting done in the Kansas City Star about fentanyl and fentanyl test strips and, and getting those decriminalized because as the state statute reads right now, uh, fentanyl testing strips would technically be illegal. And I've, I've been working to change that. And so that reporting came out from the star and then I get this email uh, that said you wanted to help me and I thought, well, this is great because I need some help. I'm not having all the luck in the world on this. Uh, tell me a little bit about about fentanyl. I mean, this is kind of an emerging issue in the in the country and, and in our state. And, and you were very passionate about that we need to decriminalize fentanyl testing strips and we need to do whatever we can to save people's lives. Tell me a little bit about how you came to this position and what you've seen in your work. So as um, when I became U.S. Attorney in 2018, I really didn't know anything about fentanyl, but I quickly learned. Uh, you know, one of the uh, big issues for the Department of Justice actually at that time was the number of overdose deaths in the country, which was large and growing rapidly. And it's just continued to grow, unfortunately. At that time, it was not all fentanyl, but fentanyl was driving a lot of it. Now, I think fentanyl is driving even more of it. So I learned about this substance and was shocked to find out that it was this powerful synthetic opioid that even a few grains could kill someone like you or I who had no tolerance for opiates or opioids. Mm -hmm. You know, an addict 
builds up a tolerance, but someone who's never encountered this, just even a, a amount like a few grains of salt, could be deadly the first time you encountered it. And then we started to see cases um, of all kinds where there were overdoses and just crazy behavior as people tried to um, avoid and counter the effects. And I can tell some of those stories, but it became clear to me that this substance was sort of a game changer. It was unlike any of the other drugs we were dealing with. And it also was sort of a, an equal opportunity killer in the sense that you know, it was not a drug of any particular class uh, or race. You know, we were seeing it in all kinds of contexts. And for me in particular, you know, I have five kids ranging in age from about 17 to almost 30. It was also starting to enter, you know, the teen and the youth culture, particularly in pill form. And mm -hmm. so I just saw the deadliness and it really caught my attention. And it's been a a passion. It's actually something I preach in all my law school classes, even though it really has nothing to do with torts or whatever I'm <laughs> teaching. I talk to my students. I find a way to talk about fentanyl and the dangers and warn them and warn their peers and warn their younger siblings and so forth. Well, because we have, because talking about the, the effect on teenagers and college students and you, you shared with me a couple of stories that about cases that you had worked and prosecuted. Um, one of the more dangerous things we're seeing in this is that there are pills that look like prescription drugs uh, that are ending up in the hands of teenagers and college students, um, but they're not. They're fentanyl. And you, you've told me a little bit about how that happens. Uh, can, you, can you explain some of that? Yeah, well, that was another thing I learned as U.S. attorney, how easy it is for people to manufacture those pills. It's actually as simple as obtaining what's called a pill press, um, which usually is purchased from China, frankly, and shipped over here, but at a, at a cost of maybe $1,000. So it is not difficult to obtain. And then you can make these pills and you can make them look like regular prescription pills and you can put in them basically whatever you want. Uh, and so there are people who do that as a business and will deal them on the internet or on the, what's called the dark web and say they are oxy or they are percocet and they may be partly those things but they may also have fentanyl in them and the problem is without something like the testing strips you have no way of knowing what they actually are and so the kids tend to be very trusting mm -hmm. they see it as percocet so they buy them to try it and if it's got fentanyl in it one try maybe one try too many Especially if they're, like you mentioned earlier, if they're in a, a novice or if they haven't used drugs before and they're just in that kind of experimental experimental phase, exactly. uh, it, that would be potentially fatal. I mean, the, the only way fentanyl actually makes sense as a user is if you're an, adequate, an addict. You know, it was originally developed for people with extreme pain. Mm -hmm. So that as, as your pain advances and you take these drugs, you build up a tolerance. So you need stronger and stronger amounts or a new drug like fentanyl. So that's why it's actually developed. So a heroin addict, for example, over time will build up a tolerance so they need something more powerful. So they may be able to have fentanyl cut into the heroin and they may actually want that. But the person who doesn't have the tolerance is just way too powerful too soon and it will either kill or put them in the hospital pretty quickly. Uh, you know, examples of how it affects people. We had an agent who was undercover and went to do a transaction with a dealer and simply shook hands with the dealer. And the agent ended up in the emergency room because of fentanyl exposure. And all we could figure out is that the dealer must have had residue on his hands. Mm -hmm. So that's, and fentanyl can be absorbed that way too. Through the skin. So through the skin. And so there's also been canines uh, who have died, the dog. So if the, if the residue or the powder is loose so that it can get into the air and the dogs are sniffing and they inhale it, it'll kill the dogs. I mean, it's just that powerful. So it doesn't have to be, you know, injected or ingested even. Just skin contact will kill people. So, the, so fentanyl, was, was it originally developed as a pharmaceutical, like, like you said, to yes. people of 
you know, they're extreme pain, morphine's not doing it anymore, and they need something. Um, how, how is this, you, you shared a little bit with me previously about how it's entering the country. How has that changed over the years? So originally, uh, we believed most of it was coming from China, um, being produced in labs over there. It's, it's a lab-produced substance, a synthetic. So, you know, the original heroin comes from the, the poppies. It's a, it's a natural product. Uh, it's an opiate with the TE. These are opioids, which are synthetic, produced in labs. Much, much more powerful than anything that's natural produced. So it was coming from China, which meant to get it into this country, a lot of it was airshipped by mail. And it also meant the quantities tended to be much less. Uh, what happened is the Mexican cartels have taken over the production of fentanyl, I think almost exclusively at this point. And once the Mexican cartels take over, it's high volume, it's, it's very high purity, and it's coming up from the south over the border in just about any way you can imagine. And we know it's huge quantities just from some of the seizures. So for example, even a couple of years ago, I think the Kansas Highway Patrol stopped a car out near Russell, Kansas on I-70 and found something like 60 to 70 pounds of fentanyl, which would be enough to, we calculated the amount, but it was enough, it would kill something like 12 million people who had no tolerance for wow. fentanyl. And wow. that's just one car on I-70. So you know the amounts coming in are massive. 70 pounds would be enough to kill 12 million people with no tolerance. Because it only takes, you know, literally the equivalent of, you know, three grains of salt for someone who has no tolerance. Wow. So as, as U.S. Attorney, you, you, you had to deal with some cases where there were fatalities from fentanyl. Can you talk about those at all? A bit, yeah. So we, we indicted a case that I think there are still probably proceedings ongoing because there were about 50 or more defendants from the Manhattan area. But one of the aspects of that case, there were a lot of defendants and a lot of pieces to that case, but one piece involved fentanyl and it was a K-State student uh, who had decided to try heroin for the first time and bought a small amount but the heroin was actually laced with fentanyl, which of course he did not know, and he had never tried anything like that before. So unfortunately, when he tried it, he was found uh, dead in his apartment the next morning. And ultimately, as we put the case together, under federal law, there's a statute that anyone who basically supplies, manufactures or supplies or distributes a drug uh, that results in serious bodily injury or death commits a federal felony that's punishable by a mandatory minimum of 20 years in prison. And so in his case, we were ultimately able to charge, I believe, five or six individuals connected to that sale of the heroin to him with that 20-year mandatory minimum. And each person along that chain gets that that 20-year right. minimum. So it can be minimum. whoever sold it, plus whoever gave it to the person who sold it all the way back to the manufacturer of the drug, yes. So you said earlier that when you got in as, a, as U.S. attorney in 2018, fentanyl was kind of a, something you didn't really know about. Um, but that, that changed pretty rapidly, and, and you, you left that office in 2021, and in 22 we're seeing that trend line is still continuing, right? Very strongly, and if anything, worse and worse, you know, from the accounts I see in that younger sort of what I'd call the non, we saw it a lot in what I would call the drug user population um, in two ways. So the heroin addicts themselves who did not realize the heroin they were getting necessarily had fentanyl. So even, you know, people who'd used heroin for some time overdosing, the other thing you would see is people who got addicted to prescription drugs because of legitimate medical issues and pain, but those things are addictive and if not managed correctly, you know, all of a sudden the doctor stops the prescription, but they're addicted. So they hit the internet or the street or some other source to try to find that drug or some form of it. So they were also, there was sort of a group there that was being drawn into this. But now what I'm seeing 
is the young folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's very concerning. I think the, particularly even the high schoolers who are experimenting with the pills, uh, and you know, it just seems far too often. I'm seeing a, another story about a, a high school kid who tried something for the first time and is now gone. Uh, and those are just tragic. So anything that can help, um, you know, and I think decriminalizing the fentanyl testing strips, if you can get those to the kids, you get those to the addicts, you get those to anyone, you know, these, these are not, um, these are not criminals. These, these are people, either young people experimenting or people with an addiction, uh, you know, they don't deserve to die. We need to do what we can to save lives. Uh, and I'd say the same thing about, you know, Narcan, in which we can talk about in the schools. There seems to be some schools resisting keeping Narcan, but Narcan is a, an antidote that if administered fairly quickly after an overdose will literally reverse the process and save lives. It's remarkable how it works. Uh, and we saw crazy stories about that because of fentanyl. So for example, drug houses where they would sell heroin, the dealers would keep stashes of Narcan on hand. So you can buy some heroin, sit down in the recliner, take your hit. If it turns out it's too powerful for you, don't worry. We have Narcan available. And then we also had a case where we had a boyfriend, girlfriend who would take turns um, shooting up so that one was ready with the Narcan in case it was too powerful. Um, but part of that is is a reaction to the fentanyl mm-hmm. because nobody knew what they were getting. That's so, so that sort of practice wasn't so common before fentanyl? No, not at all. Not at all. Fentanyl has driven the, the, the explosion in the use of Narcan and really the need for Narcan. So like the the testing strips would be another tool, you know, that would go along to help people avoid those overdoses. Uh, and the other thing I think is, you know, the notion that some seem to perceive the overdoses as almost a, a suicide or, you know, blame the victim. But actually in law enforcement, there has been a movement to treat those more as homicides with the advent of fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Because frankly, the dealers don't seem to care. Uh, you know, people marketing pills as Percocet when they know they put fentanyl in them. To the from a law enforcement perspective, that's criminal intent. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they are, are risking people's lives, playing Russian roulette with people's lives, and so law enforcement has engaged in some retraining, and I hope it continues that when there is an overdose death that is treated as a homicide scene, not just a death scene. So that they look for the drugs, if there's anything left, to seize those so they can be analyzed to figure out exactly what's there. And importantly, to get the victim's phone. Mm -hmm. Because the victim's phone will almost always show law enforcement the source of the drug. And with the source of the drug, you may be able to bring charges like I was describing mm-hmm. earlier because you know who sold that or supplied that. And if, in fact, what they supplied caused that overdose death, then at least under federal law, you may have that mandatory minimum 20-year charge. So you touched on a couple of things there that, that I kind of want to unpack a little bit. Um, the idea that, um, you know, the story is about drug houses having Narcan and the story about users um, taking turns so they can watch over each other. Um, And that's, you know, as we talk, that's been driven by fentanyl. That's not a common practice that existed before. But that sort of practice has been at least referenced or used as a sort of defense for not implementing any harm reduction strategy like fentanyl test strips that the argument is Narcan and fentanyl test strips encourage people to do drugs. Do you have any thoughts or insight on that? I don't, I don't think they do. I mean, I think, you know, the, the drug usage with the addicts is out there and will occur with or without those things, you know, their strategies as to how they go about it may change based on the availability of those things. But at the end of the day, addiction is powerful. Uh, 
And, you know, anyone who's sort of confronted it, you know, firsthand or seen it up close, you know, the people, they need help. Um, they need our support and our sympathy, not our condemnation and anything that will save lives. You know, eventually most addicts do try to find their way out of that world. And so if we can keep them alive until they get to that point, that seems to me the better policy rather than saying don't give them any tools to to prolong or save their lives uh, and let these overdose deaths continue. I mean, we're way over 100,000 overdose deaths per year, which is just shocking. I mean, when I was first U.S. attorney four years ago, I think the number was around 60,000, which was shocking. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it's continued to grow at such a, an alarming rate uh, just suggest to me we need to use every tool available to try to bring that number down. And some of the research that I've done on this indicates that Kansas, uh, from the first half of 2021, so the data lags a little bit in real time, um, Kansas had a 54% increase in overdose deaths, which would put us at third highest in the country for the fastest rate of increase in overdose deaths. And uh, but but we also don't have a lot of tools that that we deploy. Another question I wanted to ask you uh, on the, on this front was um, we we talked about the you know the the usage patterns and the and the things we're seeing there. And one of the other things you mentioned was that that traditionally when we see an overdose, we just treat it as a death. Can you explain a little bit the difference between? treating something as a death scene or a suicide versus a homicide and how law enforcement approaches that investigation. Yeah, so I mean from a law enforcement perspective if it's if it's simply an unattended death um you know, they they're really just there to sort of secure the scene, um comfort the family, uh, you know, make sure things get taken care of that have to be done but not to investigate, uh, uh, you know, just unless there's any indication of foul play. Um, but in an overdose death, you know, typically you would just have a person who has died and there would be no indication of violence or, you know, breaking into the home or anything like that. Uh, with the suicide, you know, there would be indication of something perhaps that the person had done, uh, depending on the method they chose to use. Although if it was a self-inflicted overdose, that would probably have to be determined by an autopsy, whereas, you know, hanging or other methods might be apparent from the scene. But again, there would not be a lot for law enforcement to do there. Whereas if it's a homicide, there are things that law enforcement needs to do, such as gather evidence and secure it properly and then conduct an actual investigation uh, with the key being any more that phone because you know, especially with the younger generation that's how they do all of their communication mm -hmm. and so you're going to find everything on that phone you're going to find the text messages the phone calls everything else everything right? else and you know and more than likely their source for whatever they have taken there's been contact either through text or online in some fashion and even in some of these cases uh, you know they've taken pictures of what they're up to or they've taken pictures of the pills they got so you find things on the phone that will help build the case um, that you then may be able to use against the dealer and and so you know my preference would be you know not to condemn the victim but to shut down the people who are dealing the stuff and, you know, really make it clear to them that if you're out there selling things and you don't even know what's in it and you're killing teenagers or others, you could be looking at a minimum of 20 years in a federal prison. And that ought to be a fairly strong incentive, I would hope, to think about what you're doing and maybe choose a different profession. Yeah, especially for those kind of on the ground people, the ones that are actually handing the pill yes. to a college kid or something. Right. I mean, those far back the chain are far enough away that they're, you know, it, that's the challenge for law enforcement is to reach back up the chain. Obviously, we'd love to get at the cartels. That's extremely difficult. But the statute does allow us to go as far back as we can trace. 
So, you know, it could go as far as the manufacturer, but certainly we'll go to the distributor. So if we knew where it came into in that initial, say, that 60 or 70 pound mm -hmm. delivery came into Kansas City and we knew who that came to, we, we could go after those people. So in, in, in the context of that conversation, uh, it, one of the things that I think stands out to me, and I, I guess what I've been thinking about, and I think you're kind of validating for that me, that for me, is the idea that, that that fentanyl is you said it was a game changer when you saw it you know when you're when you were a US attorney but but it's a game changer in that to me I guess in that, that it, there's a distinction between drug use of heroin and, and cocaine and things like that but when fentanyl is there it's a it's somebody's being poisoned yes. un unknowingly I mean it's 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 just so powerful that it's deadly to you know a high percentage of the population and even a high percentage of people already who may be using those drugs and it's deadly particularly when its presence is unknown mm -hmm. which is what the testing strips would help protect against so even fairly long time heroin users for example can be killed by it. So I mean, it's not the case that just because you've used heroin for a while that uh, somebody mixes fentanyl in, you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. It depends on how much fentanyl is in that heroin. And so even a, you know, an addict who has some tolerance buildup is not necessarily immune from the effects. It depends on what goes into that batch of heroin. And the danger with fentanyl and the way the dealers and others handle it these days, nobody knows. I mean, nobody, nobody knows exactly what's in there. And a lot of times, so there's sort of two levels. You don't know with these pills and things if fentanyl's there at all. Or you don't know even if it's there in what quantity mm -hmm. or what dose. And, so. and, and one of the things, and you kind of talked about it earlier with the, the, the Narcan, um, but there's pretty robust research that shows... That, when people have test strips, and I think there was a study out of Rhode Island and another one out of Massachusetts, that when people have test fentanyl test strips and they test their drugs and they see the presence of fentanyl, they do change their behavior, their usage behavior. And and I think that's kind of backed up by what you said with the people watching over right. each other. And, and uh, But did you see other examples of that? Or, or do you think that, that that research bears out? I mean, I'm not as familiar with that research, but it would certainly make sense in light of the, you know, experiences we had with the folks in their Narcan usage that, you know, they do appreciate the risk. They understand it, um, but it's lacking the tools to do anything about it. So having the fentanyl testing strips would allow them, you know, to respond in a way that at this point in time they're not able to, uh, which is why I think it's important to give them another tool um you know i don't i just can't imagine uh folks testing finding the presence of fentanyl and then proceeding to take it anyway that would be utterly irrational frankly or at least at a minimum you know at least maybe within the heroin addiction world knowing the presence of fentanyl they would certainly be prepared with narcan mm -hmm. so and that's what the research indicates is that they either discard the product Sometimes they go back to their dealer and say, why did you sell me fentanyl? Right. And, they, and they start shopping around for somebody else who won't sell them fentanyl. Um, or they, they adjust the amount that they take. Like normally they might take this much, but then they're going to take a lesser amount or take it slow uh, over time. Or they make sure they have somebody with them who has Narcan available. Well, and that's, so you remind me of one other thing that we saw, um, the power of fentanyl. Um, we also, I think, in at least one case, we were preparing to indict lost potential defendants along the way because they overdosed. Um, and it's not clear it was actually from usage. It may have been from handling of the oh. product. So that even these dealers foolishly put themselves at risk when they're handling and cutting, you know, fentanyl uh, with the heroin, uh, they may take themselves out of the picture. So, I mean, it's just that powerful. Wow. And again, so. So 
you, you know, I know it's it's starting to crop up and that the Marysville Police Department recently seized a, a big amount of marijuana that was laced with fentanyl. Yeah. So it's now starting to enter away from they the... put it in anything, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's the other thing. For whatever reason, people are starting to include it in products you would not even necessarily expect. So once you know it can appear in marijuana, it can appear in anything that's a pill, mm-hmm. certainly heroin. I mean, why won't they put it in cocaine? I mean, you know, just about anything now, uh, it really is again a game changer because it's it's deadly in any of those substances and particularly anything other than heroin people just may not be expecting it and that's where you also have users least likely to have any kind of opiate tolerance Mm -hmm. because those are not opiate substances uh, and fentanyl is Uh, so at least the heroin users may have some tolerance built up but any of those other drugs by definition, if that's the only kind of drugs they've been using, they don't have any opiate tolerance. So the presence of fentanyl is likely to be deadly. Is fentanyl cheaper? It, why, why are why what is the what is the attraction of from from dealers to put fentanyl in, into drugs? I mean, you had had this conversation with me earlier about cartels don't care. I mean, if they sell it to kids, if they sell it to your mom, they they don't care. Yeah, I mean, they they don't care. They like to expand the market. Um, you know, now that the cartels have taken over the production, they get all the profit from the fentanyl. Um, you know, the volume of it that they're producing, they just want to move it. Um, and obviously, putting it into heroin alone must not be sufficient for the supply they are generating. So they are probably pushing it on... And we've seen the cartels do this. I mean, push other drugs onto their wholesalers. Um, you know, so you want our meth, but you're also going to take cocaine from us now because we have it, and you're going to take it mm-hmm. um, and sell it. And so it may be that they've got an oversupply of fentanyl now that they've taken over, and they are pushing it. And so dealers are trying to figure out other ways to use it up because they can't use it all within the, I'm just speculating, but they can't use it all within the heroin, so they try mixing it with marijuana or other things, or certainly they put it in the pills. You know, and some of the pills, of course, have opioids in them, so fentanyl in that sense may be a natural mix there, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it certainly wouldn't be with marijuana, so. Is there a danger outside, I mean, talking about the volume and talking about the surface contact and people who have gotten sick or or died from skin absorption um are there other potential dangers out there with fentanyl i mean we some of us have seen stories where sometimes you see like discarded needles or things like that is there, is there potential for kind of broader community danger well, anything anything where the residue could be present so you know anything the dealers have used to cut it to blend it um you know, certainly like the people using the pill presses, any, you know, anything that they have done, even, you know, if they generate trash that they put out, I suppose, you know, anything where the residue could be present, such small amounts and the fact that skin contact will do it or, you know, breathing it in. So if there's any chance it's on a surface where humans would be near and could inhale, because that's how the dogs Mm -hmm. die uh, is inhaling particles Um, you know it's why law enforcement has changed for example um, you know historically often when they discovered um, large packages of drugs they might cut into them and take a sample and try to test to you know field test to determine exactly what it is but with fentanyl they're not going to cut into a package to try to determine what it is because they could kill themselves Mm -hmm. doing that so you know, that's going to go back to a lab to be tested okay. under conditions where it can be done safely so that where somebody has like a hazmat suit on nobody's going to accidentally inhale or get any of it on them or anything like that so aside from the personal cost to in, in death and things like that it, it, do you have any thoughts on what the social cost is or even what the economic cost is and, and i know that's a the, the hard numbers might be hard to nail down but it seems to me if we have something that you know is growing and hurting more people and enveloping more people 
there must be, I mean, aside from deaths, I've read some data that talks about the number of hospital admissions. That's probably a drain on the, the overall taxpayer at some level. It is. I mean, you know, so it's it's not always overdose deaths. It's also overdose hospitalizations and treatment and EMT emergency ambulance calls. So I think one of the recent instances in the Kansas City area was four high school boys who got a hold of what they thought were two Percocets and decided they would cut them in half and they would each take a half. Um, and one boy tragically died, but the other four all had to have emergency care. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's a significant cost in that respect, but the toll on families as well uh, is substantial, you know, when you, and, and the toll on society, when you're losing, you know, these young lives, um, and the productivity and the promise that they had you know that's the other thing this is not you know this isn't the world of i guess if you want to sort of imagine the you know the back alley addict who you know is homeless and lays there grungy by a trash dumpster trying to figure out where to get the next hit and you know, that's that's not really what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, like I said, a, is sort of an equal opportunity killer that is affecting people across the spectrum. Um, and so, you know, the economic impact is wide, I would say, and deep in terms of all kinds of Americans being affected by this. Um, family members, uh, you know, across all kinds of races and social status uh, just about anyone and everyone, you know, may well have a story about this. And certainly if it continues, that will definitely... That will only grow. Yep, right. that will only grow. And I think that's an interesting point. And one of the things that we've, we saw at first with, with things like Oxycontin and o, the opioids, um, but now with fentanyl, it's, it's kind of accelerating. But it really is uh, not confined to the... I mean, I think the previous idea about addiction was that it was a group of people over there and we can largely ignore them and they will either keep using until they die or they will get out of addiction and, and live a normal life and do what we'd like them to do. But because of the things that have happened over the last decade or so, the increase in prescription of opioids and the reliance on those um, I think I read something that Kansas was somewhere around 76 per, I can't remember what it was, but the prescription was very, it's like 76 prescriptions per 100,000 people. It was was a huge number. Um, Shocking to me that we had prescribed that many. Yeah, that's an area we haven't even talked about is the prescription drugs um, is shocking as well. That was another thing I learned as U.S. attorney. So there are... um, data tracking systems, which virtually all states and the federal government have. Um, Missouri does not actually have, but Kansas does. Um, and we could go in and see what um, doctors were doing. And we did. I mean, we would look at what they were doing. Now, it doesn't tell you, you know, individual patients or their conditions, but you can see overall where a doctor stands in terms of what they're prescribing of these kinds of drugs. And so you could look for the outliers and potentially um, give you a reason to maybe initiate an investigation. Uh, And we did prosecute a doctor uh, in Wichita, including for an overdose death. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was convicted and is serving a long um, jail sentence, but yeah, I mean, that's that's another piece of the problem is there are, you know, not a lot, but there are some unscrupulous doctors who have chosen to simply make money off of the opioids. And as I said, they're, they're addictive so that even people who start with a legitimate medical condition, it's painful. These are a legitimate way to treat pain, but if not properly managed, people will become addicted. And then an unscrupulous doctor can take advantage of that by just continuing to prescribe. And so you get what are called these basically pill mill operations Mm -hmm. where people may even come from out of state, 
tell the doctor anything. He or she just keeps writing prescriptions. And so the doctor's making lots of money off the prescriptions. The patients are getting legitimate um, drugs, at least. They're not fentanyl-laced, mm-hmm. but it's just feeding the addictions uh, unless and until that option runs out. And then that's when people are turning to the internet sources and other things where they start getting the, the problems of not knowing exactly mm-hmm. what they're getting. But there is another piece, which is the the so-called legitimate doctor prescriptions. Um, and there's actually a, a case at the Supreme Court right now involving a federal prosecution of a couple doctors where the issue uh, involves whether uh, the government, they're arguing the standard should be their best medical judgment about whether to prescribe. And the federal government is arguing that no, there has to be an objective sort of floor so that you can't just argue in good faith we prescribe to all these people mm-hmm. that, you know, it has to have some sort of standard that, you know, most doctors would agree this was legitimate because otherwise if it's just your good faith then it will allow some of these kind of unscrupulous practices because the doctors will say i thought the patients needed it when in reality most doctors would not say that yeah so, so you have to have some benchmark on right that. exactly well in this area I, I and tell me if i'm wrong on this but it seems that one of the contributing factors in in fentanyl issue is that we had a period of time where the prescription of pain medications was normalized. I mean, even not considering the outliers who were prescribing too much, even responsible doctors who were trying to manage it and made their patients come check in with them and made sure that they were trying to dose an appropriate amount to to do the pain management. That was normalized for a period of time. And then there was a recognition that these things were Maybe the pharmaceutical companies weren't completely honest with this. No, well, I think the pharmaceutical companies had motives to want to push those drugs. And it's a fair point you mentioned. You know, I'm trying to think. I've had a couple of, and just personally, I've had a couple of dental procedures. And I was trying to think of something else. But I think at least in recent years, maybe three times I've had doctors or dentists or somebody um, prescribe, you know, oxy or hydro for me for pain and having become u.s attorney i have refused to take a single pill <laughs> you're a little <laughs> you know, sensitive there right, right. <laughs> but they, they just sort of automatically you know oh well you're having this you know done so i'll just prescribe you this you know and take it if if it's painful and you know i just made the determination i'm not going to take a single one but it seems like it's just sort of as, as a matter of course they do it and yeah without any real assessment about individual patient patients. So, yeah. And then when, well, it's funny that you say that because I think it's about seven, eight years ago, I had a shoulder rotator cuff surgery and they gave me oxy for that. And of course the first few days I was just in terrible pain and all I wanted to do is sleep. So I took it. Um, I know that before that I always said to myself, I didn't understand how people could get addicted to that. Cause for me, it just made me so groggy and, mm-hmm. um, tired and I never, I thought I could never do that. But I did take it through the course of of healing on that, that I did hit a point where I would take the oxy and then felt like I could manage my day okay. And that's when I was like, oh, I I gotta switch Tylenol. It's it's time to be done with this. Because it does, as you build that tolerance up to it, you do start to think, oh, I can can take these, I can take the same dosage and then uh, I'd be fine to do whatever I, I needed to do. It's pretty easy to slip into, and you know that I don't think we appreciated that at first, and there's a better understanding of that now. So one of the issues, though, is that as 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 doctors recognize that, then they started clamping down a little bit more, and there was kind of a nationwide movement to say, um, okay, we thought this was okay, it's not okay. We have to clamp down on that. But by then, there were people that were addicted to legitimate mm-hmm. prescription opioids, and their addiction didn't go away, even though the the formal supply and the safe right. supply went away. And that's led a number of those people to go look for illicit drugs yes. to satisfy yes. that addiction. And that's that's another challenge we've encountered in the law enforcement side. So. 
one way that has been fed as well as other uh, markets for illegal things has been the dark web mm -hmm. which i didn't understand either before i became u.s attorney but it's sort of this alternative internet and you know any i'm not encouraging anyone but all one would have to do is google the dark web to figure out how to get into it mm -hmm. but it's basically a web that makes it uh, virtually impossible for law enforcement to track who is actually operating on it because of the way the messages and the communications ping through these various stations and the encryption and so forth. But it, what it has become is the market for things illegal for the most part. So the drugs, the, the sort of the fentanyl, uh, but virtually anything else, um, weapons, uh, sometimes potentially even people, um, you know, human trafficking. But the dark web has also facilitated, you know, the, the fentanyl and the, the opioids and things for people who want them and can't get them legitimately anymore. And so the FBI has made major efforts attacking the dark web, but it's, you know, it's always a challenge because every time law enforcement makes a step forward it seems like you know the criminals are already three steps further down the road so yeah that's yeah. that's tough and they're always working to to move product it yeah. seems and yeah yeah one thing i think kind of going back a little bit um for people who don't understand we, we've been talking about the fentanyl test strips and uh and, and i'm realizing that maybe not everyone is familiar with that the fentanyl test strips were originally designed to do a urine test, right? That, that we could test and see if someone has fentanyl in their system to see if they're abusing fentanyl. Um, in, the, in the context of testing a drug preemptively, how, how does that work? Well, that I'd actually ask you because I think you probably know better <laughs> than I do. <laughs> well, my, well, my understanding is you would, you would take a portion of the drug um, and, and crush it or somehow uh, pow, you know, powder it and then mix it with a little bit of water, water dampen the strip it, yeah. and then test it that way. And I mean, that's you my understanding too, is that that's, you've got to get it in a sort of water-based form mm -hmm. in order to do it, which with the pills you would do and, and with the heroin you could do as well. Um, and then it would indicate on the strip, you know, a positive or not. So. Yeah. And then at that point, the, the potential user has the information that there is fentanyl here and can, can make that determination. Yeah. And, I know in states that have decriminalized fentanyl testing strips, um, the, there's some resources that can be leveraged. People can start distributing them. People can start doing some education efforts and, and things like that. Um, and that's part of, I think that's why we both uh, want to make sure that's done because it's just a tool that gets it out there for people. Just a tool and it's a tool that will need to come with education about, you know, how to use them and their availability because, you know, it won't be necessarily immediately apparent to teenagers, but if it's something that's publicized, you know, and they realize they can have access to this, one would hope, you know, at least some of them will take advantage of it. Um, and certainly um, there will be people who will, will take advantage of them just like you know, the, the notion that any of the schools now would not stock Narcan, I think, is foolish. Um, you know, I, I don't know what the objection to it would be. It's relatively cheap. It's extremely effective. Mm -hmm. And so why not have it on hand? I mean, there's, there's no, to me, there's no argument that stocking Narcan at your school for possible overdose somehow is going to encourage kids to overdose at school. I, I just don't see that. So yeah. it's, it's a precautionary measure that has all upside and no downside. Um, but yeah, I think the testing strips being decriminalized, it's not going to encourage drug activity. It's going to save lives and it's a relatively inexpensive way to do it. And then we need to get out there educating people and making sure the strips are available. Do you, the education part um, and making sure like if we can get this done and we, we make sure that um, this is a tool that people have, um, the education part, both about testing strips and about fentanyl, um, it seems that people are really just now, like the general public is really just now starting to recognize the threat of fentanyl. It's, it's reached, you know, like you said, it's, it's reaching kids. We have young people dying from it. 
um, and it's affecting families in such a way that now communities are learning more about this in, in a very unfortunate way though, right? Yeah, yeah, no it is, it's, it's unfortunate. I wrote an op-ed probably two years or more ago for the Kansas City Star about fentanyl and because I started seeing it, but I just don't know that people were appreciating because they weren't seeing what we were seeing. Um, and until you see it, um, you know, and I think sometimes people are, to be honest, embarrassed, um, you know, so sometimes the reaction when a family member overdoses and the autopsy comes back and says fentanyl is, you know, well, that's not our family. That's not us, you mm -hmm. know, and they don't necessarily want that to be public. Now, mm -hmm. thank goodness there are some families who want to tell the story because they want others to hear mm -hmm. and try to prevent their children from or their relatives from having that experience. But that's not always the reaction. So some people don't want to publicize um, what has happened. And, you know, and so that that has sometimes, I think, prevented it from being as well known as what's actually going on out there. Um, you know, I had one one instance I can think of where I know someone who died of a fentanyl overdose, I think had a pill, was a hardworking sort of somewhat manual labor, but also skilled labor, had back pain, I think either bought a pill or got one from a friend, um, overdosed, when the autopsy came back after his death, fentanyl was present, mm -hmm. so that was the cause. I asked if I could put the DEA on it, and the family did not want to, yeah. because they just didn't want to go there. But I probably, with the DEA and the victim's phone, probably could have found out who sold it, yeah. probably could have brought federal charges, but the family just was not comfortable with you know, they didn't want, they didn't really want people to know yeah. that fentanyl was part of that. So, you know, sometimes that's the reaction, which I understand is a human matter. Sure. But the reality is fentanyl's out there killing. Yeah. And it's indiscriminate. Yes. And in, in who it's killing. And, yes. And, yeah. You, you've been in law for a, quite a while um, and you've worked in a number of, of jobs. Aside from fentanyl, how have you seen kind of our understanding and our our approach to drugs and addiction change over the years? I mean, I'm a child of the '80s, so it was just say no, um, high high punishments um, for things like possession and, and and whatnot. And it feels like there's a recognition that that maybe that didn't work as well as we had hoped. Yeah, no, I think our our approach to drug policy has evolved. I think it needs to continue to evolve. Um, you know, I think we did finally realize that we had a dramatic, you know, I won't say whether there was racial intent, but certainly there was a, a definite racial impact that was disproportionate and unfair. Um, so we've worked to, to better that. I also think we've realized that possessory offenses are not probably worthy of the sentences that they received at one point in time. Uh, having watched it from the inside, it is very, very difficult um, to defeat it on the supply side, mm -hmm. you know, going after the dealers. You can't get at the really high level cartel people, that's almost impossible. So you end up with, you know, the folks here. So for example, in Kansas, you know, you, you may get the folks in Kansas City or Wichita, but you're not gonna get the people in Mexico. Um, and there are just so many of them. Um, you take them off the street, somebody takes their place. Mm -hmm. um, There's always somebody to step into that role, it's, right? It's hard on the supply side. So the other issue is how do we address the demand side? You know, because the reason the cartels make money is because there are people in America buying the drugs. You know, so it's it's got to be a... And if there wasn't a market, they wouldn't go through the trouble of exactly. bringing it here. So, so, you know, and I've always wondered how we could do better on the market side. And I think that's where we've probably not you know, expended enough resources, partly because it's, it's, it's challenging, but to 
get people out of addiction and into recovery to educate our kids you know maybe it's not as simple as just say no but maybe it is more complicated as to here are the dangers you know these things can kill you now with fentanyl um you know and just the maybe a more um sophisticated uh, talk with teenagers rather than just say no um, you know of course teenagers in particular don't like being told <laughs> just no but but you know honest discussions about the risks and and the downsides of drug usage uh, so you know i think we have a ways to go but i think we're getting better in terms of fairness on the prosecution side you know there's i think it's not perfect but less racial uh, disparities in the process uh, and certainly you know the the substances have changed somewhat over time so you know there's not crack is not prevalent like it once was mm -hmm. um, meth actually in kansas has become probably the number one drug mm -hmm. in terms of prosecutions um, and is problematic in its own right um, we haven't talked about it, but meth is, is a big problem. Um, destroys lives as well. It just doesn't usually kill instantly, but it's, it's a slower but often certain process that destroys lives and families. So. And am I right in thinking, you know, when I was a crime reporter years ago with the Hutch News, that early in my career the, the issue was meth labs. And... Then we took some measures and it seemed to cut down on that. But I remember that my local drug enforcement guy at the time said, well, we'll just import it from Mexico and it'll be cheaper. Cheaper and better. Yep. Um, so, yeah, so the Breaking Bad is long gone. There's nobody in an <laughs> RV or in a farmhouse now out in the country um, doing it. There's absolutely no reason because the cartels long ago took it over and they do it in high, high purity far better than any of the local labs did. In high quantities, the prices have come down um, and they get it here in all sorts of ways. Uh, so yeah, it's it's probably the number one drug actually in Kansas um, right now is meth. Um, and it's probably, probably the number one product of the cartels, frankly, nationwide. And it, and I think I've seen some stories. It can also be um, uh, tainted with fentanyl. It can be. Yeah. It can be, and it can also be overdosed in its own right. Mm -hmm. So Kansas has seen meth overdoses, um, but it often works uh, slower as well. And you know, people just deteriorate over time on meth as they continue to use it, um, and highly addictive. It's you know, it's hard for people to get off of. Yeah. yeah so it tends to destroy you know, a family or people who get involved with it um, and a fair amount of violence that's been associated with it. Yeah, so. yeah because it creates a certain mental instability, I think, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Well, before I, I let you go, I always kind of ask a, a wrap-up question, and I'll, mm -hmm. I'll do the same of you. It, it, in this conversation about fentanyl, fentanyl testing strips and, and kind of what's happening in this world, what is one thing that you wish people knew or, or would do, um, you know, uh, as, as, as it relates to this? Well, I think the one thing I wish people would understand is just what a game changer fentanyl is. It's unlike anything else we've ever seen in the drug world. Uh, it's a killer. And not just a, a, a killer in the usual sense, like any drug potentially people could overdose, this one is so deadly and it's now so likely to be encountered by so many people that it's just a game changer where I think we need to take every measure we can to fight back and try to protect our citizens, our, you know, our family members, our friends, those in our community. It's not time for judgment about who's trying this or who's addicted to this or any of that. Put judgment aside. We just need to protect people and try to save lives because fentanyl is unlike anything we've ever seen and hopefully we won't see anything else like it but it is, it is just unique in its deadliness and i just 
want people to appreciate that this is just a whole different world from anything we've seen before. Well, I appreciate that. And I, I appreciate you coming on today and taking the time to visit with me. And, and I also appreciate all the, the help you've given and support you've given me in, in trying to, to create some, some strategies that might save some lives. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, thank you. I'd like to thank a few of the people who've helped make that podcast and Hutch possible. My son, Mitchell Probst, wrote and recorded the music for the show. Jenny Brigette put together some great graphics and promotional art. And Chris Acker helps overcome my mistakes to produce a great sounding product every episode. That podcast and Hutch is made possible through a collaboration between the Hutchison Arts and Culture Collective and Salt City Sound. They're working to bring resources and infrastructure to support art, music, and storytelling in our community. If you have an idea for your own podcast, reach out to them at podcasts at saltcitysound.net. If you enjoy that podcast and Hutch, be sure to subscribe and share it with all your friends. You can also help support this production by subscribing to thatguyandhutch.substack.com or by emailing me at thatguyandhutch at gmail.com to learn about sponsorship opportunities. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next week. Assault City Sound Production.